Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So while many podcasts are funded through you know, sponsors or ad revenue, here at Climate Optimus, we rely on listener donations to bring you the programming that you hear. So if you're a regular and value what you get from us, consider a donation. All you have to do is head over to our website, climateoptimist.com, and click the donate button. And as, as Todd says, no donation is too small or too big. I do say no donation is too big. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, in all seriousness, even $5 a month goes a long way for us. And those monthly donations are, are definitely valuable because it's a steady stream of, of support. So our early listeners will remember that we did an episode focused on the impacts of climate change on agriculture and you know what farmers are going to need to do to become more resilient. And today we've decided to focus on ag from a slightly different vantage point and dive into the emissions created by you know, producing our food and, and what can be done to reduce them. Before we go there, Todd, you, you made it back from your, uh, your hunting excursion and, and no frostbite. No frostbite, although it was cold. It was, it was, it was fun. It was, it was good to, uh, to unplug and, and get away a little bit and hang out with some, uh, some friends and family and whatnot, but, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to be back in a little bit warmer weather here. But moving on to the reason for hope, newly elected President Gustavo Petro from Colombia is trying to move the country away from, from oil production, which is, is kind of a big move for them. And he seems to have some popular support, which is good. And wanted to quote him because I thought it was a kind of a poignant quote. He said, the opinion of power has ordered that cocaine is poison, he said, but instead, coal and oil must be protected, even when it can extinguish all humanity. Wow. Sounds like a pretty well-spoken dude. Uh, it's, it's strange because Colombia, you know, is still relatively a poor country and has probably decades more oil revenue to, to cash in on, and that money counts now for around a fifth of government income and a tenth of its gross domestic product. So it would be, you know, it's no small feat to try to take something like this on. Their energy production is pretty sustainable, though. They generate about 80% of their energy from mostly hydropower. So, you know, it's not like they're they're using a lot of this for, you know, generation, but uh, income for their country, it would be it would be kind of a big hit. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes and see if, if he can be successful at kind of shutting this down. I mean, that's even if it isn't something that takes place right away, it's pretty massive, right? That a country that, you know, has effectively all this kind of black gold sitting there. Sure. You know, recognizes what that will mean for their future if we keep it consuming it. Yeah. And I, I was really surprised too how, even the people who disagreed with him in the business community were supportive of the idea and like supportive of him and his um, intent. And there wasn't any vitriol toward him about it. And it was just staggering to see 
the difference between kind of their discourse and what we've been living with <laughs> for the right. past, you know, number of years here and just the, the, the major difference in how they kind of spoke and are speaking to each other and the things that they're saying about each other. You know, it was very, very different. Sounds like the U.S. could learn something yeah, from our definitely. neighbors to the south. I guess speaking of oil, that's a good segue. You know, although the energy sector is the largest source of global greenhouse gas emissions, generating our food is still a significant contributor. And depending on, you know, what you include in food production, whether you include sort of the direct emissions that people think of kind of on the farm or, you know, the greater supply chain, you can be looking at anywhere from 15 to 25% of our global emissions. So while fossil fuels rightfully, you know, gets the majority of the focus, agriculture is still ripe with opportunity when it comes to, you know, cutting emissions. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that sort of further underscores it is we're not set to be producing less food in the world. I mean, populations can continuing to grow. We just hit 8 billion the other day, which is, you know, in many ways a scary milestone, but food production is forecast to increase between 2009 and 2050 by almost 70%. And so naturally more, more food results in more emissions. And the World Resources Institute had this interesting piece where they looked at sort of the two paths we could take and, you know, taking kind of a path of no action, which is kind of where we are today, could result in a 60% increase in the greenhouse gas emissions from the food sector versus a, you know, more ambitious path that would result in only about a 5%, I think they said 6% increase in greenhouse gas emissions. So either way, just producing the additional volume of food that we need is going to result in more greenhouse gases, but we clearly have a an important decision to make there. So before we get into the discussion of solutions, I thought it might be interesting to kind of talk for a minute about different ways we can break down emissions, you know, from our food. One way that a lot of folks kind of look at it is through this lens of the end product. So we've got, you know, like animal-based food, meat and dairy, uh, which accounts for about 60% of global emissions, plant-based food, about 30%, and then, you know, non-food uses within agriculture, things like cotton or, or rubber at about 10%. Another way you can slice it as we look through these different analyses is kind of the source of the emissions. So for instance, we have change in, in land use, right? I think you know, we talked about many times on this podcast, the problem of deforestation being driven by more land clearing and land use change is actually the biggest single bucket when it comes to our, our food production at about 40%. Then secondary data is, are the emissions from, you know, the farmland directly at about 30%. It's like soil disturbance, fertilizer, burning crop residues, et cetera. And then really the third kind of big bucket is uh, what we, I kind of call like direct livestock emissions, right? The things from the cows, goats, sheep, which primarily in this case is, you know, what's called enteric fermentation. So cow burps. Anyway, just some different ways to think about the emissions that come from our food, how you can dice those up. But let's pivot to, I guess, the actual solution side. And let's start maybe first, Thomas, with with the dirt and, you know, what we can do to 
to reduce the amount of, of carbon that we're releasing from, from our soils and, you know, and even pivoted in a different direction where it has the potential to be partially a, a solution. Yeah, I, th- I think the soils have uh, a role to play in you know, the mitigation of climate change through carbon storage. But it's, it's important to understand that you know, not all carbon is equal in the, in the role of uh, sequestration and, and soil carbon storage for the reasons that some carbon can be very mobile still in terms of organic carbon. The moment you have a, a, a drought, all that, all that carbon that you've sequestered over the last four or five years might be then released back into the atmosphere or you have a, a bushfire and it takes out a bunch of agricultural land and you know that then causes the, the, the carbon under the ground to break down as well. It's not really until the carbon is converted into mineralized carbon forms through microbial uh, degradation that it becomes more permanent that you know it's much much more difficult for it to break down over time and it can be locked up for thousands of years or indefinitely so we've just got to keep that in mind and be very cognizant that we don't end up using it as an excuse to keep sucking fossil fuels out of the ground and burning them because we think we're locking carbon up somewhere else when really it's only semi-permanent in many situations in other words, if I'm understanding you right, we've got, you know, we've got the carbon that, that we can all sort of visualize that gets put into the soil by plant roots and, you know, and, and things like that. But those, those eventually decompose and, you know, and with it, a lot of that goes back into the atmosphere potentially. And so it's only when it really moves into this mineralized form that it's kind of like stable, if you will. Correct. Yeah. And, but it's not to say that having soil organic carbon is is not a good thing it it is it's a fantastic thing it really helps with productivity of um you know the agricultural land in general you know because organic carbon acts as a as a great big sponge so it's phenomenally amazing at being able to store water so that you know the, the soil doesn't dry out or the water just doesn't run off into the rivers and flow out to the sea as soon as there's any rainfall it stores that carbon that then it stores that moisture that then becomes accessible to the plants during dry periods and of course with you know, increased fluctuations in the climate that we're going to see uh, during these uh, because of climate change um, having that water storage capacity in the soil is of course a really good thing um, it also, it creates a, a habitat, so to speak, for, for microbes, which allow the release of nutrients to plants to improve uh, crop yields and so forth. So it, you know, there's a multitude of benefits. A, th- a third one is, of course, the filtration capabilities and the fact that it then makes the, the water that ends up in the creeks and rivers and groundwater stores much cleaner because the, uh, the soil carbon has been able to basically filter out contaminants so you know there's a multitude of benefits from having it even if it's not locked up in terms of uh mineralized carbon so beneficial regardless and beneficial on a lot of levels what sort of things for those who might not be familiar what sort of things you know would need to occur on a farm that let's say doesn't have a lot of carbon in its soil and wants to increase the amount of soil carbon what sort of practices would help with that yeah so i mean Basically, ever since the mechanization of agriculture, we've become really good at tilling soils, you know, preparing the soils so that we've got a really nice seed bed to allow, you know, rapid germination of crops. And then 
you know, in in modern agriculture, we then go about dumping a whole bunch of uh, fertilizers, almost treating soil now like a, a hydroponic type scenario where we add the water, we add the uh, nutrients and, and we get the plants to grow. Um, so moving away from that and back towards more perennial crops that are deep rooted, that allow you to sequester the carbon over a longer period of time at much deeper depths is probably where we need to pivot. However, it's not easy to achieve this without significantly changing practices from what we do today. But but at a, at a macro level, it sounds like some of those practices are, you know, minimizing the amount of tillage that we do. If there are perennial varieties of a crop, utilizing those, utilizing things, you know, like, like cover crops that can push additional organic matter into the soil. But, you know, it, it's not a silver bullet, it sounds like. No, but we, we have to do it if we want to make agriculture sustainable. So what we're doing right now, I mean, it's clearly not, not just from a, an emissions perspective, but just degradation of the soil. Like right now, we're, we're talking decades left of doing what we're doing today to have depleted the soils to the point where they're you know, basically unviable for what we're doing. So yeah, I mean, things, things have to change, but it's going to be difficult to do that and, and maintain the yields that we're, do, that we're achieving at the moment. But it is, it's entirely possible, but yeah, it's not easy. So, so Thomas, it sounds like, you know, and, and I know we've talked about this before, lots of opportunity to make our soils healthier, which not only is good for the climate, but ultimately makes for a more sustainable food system. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about sort of the fertility side. I mean, most folks, I think, know that, that uh, there are these chemical-based fertilizers that you can put down to give the plants nutrients, but wonder if you can talk about the problematic side from a carbon perspective. Yeah. So, I mean, from a, a carbon perspective, the, the biggest problem child in, in that department is undoubtedly ammonia-based fertilizers. So right now they're predominantly made from nat- natural gas, right? From fossil gas. And they have historically been quite inexpensive and subsequently abused. So in the past, you used to you need you need nitrogen in a plant to be able to build cell structures, right? Um, and historically, because the atmosphere is seventy percent nitrogen, that was fixed into the soil by certain plant species, clovers and other legumes, that then make it available to grasses and other plants in the soil that maybe aren't so good at fixing nitrogen out of the air. They might be good at photosynthesizing and taking carbon out of the air or carbon dioxide out of the air, um, but they, they still need this nitrogen for the cell structures. But what we've done in recent years is become really good at making these ammonia-based fertilizers, which contain that nitrogen and, and pumping that into the soil um, or distributing it in granulated form so that we don't have to go and grow those complementary plant species. But of course, recently, as you know, the oil price has gone through the roof because of the war in Ukraine, it's forced up massively the price of ammonia-based fertilizers. And that is kind of a good thing in a way because all of a sudden all these farmers that really have been abusing it because it's just been so cheap and, and using it on things such as pastures, rather than g- growing clovers in their pastures, they just grow all ryegrass and just pump 
the ammonia-based fertilizers in to supply the nitrogen to the plant. Um, now they're moving away from that and going back towards having a mixed species pasture, which is you know far more sustainable and, of course, has a much lower uh, level of carbon emissions. Well, and then it, it turns out also when you put too much of it on, it ends up in our in our river systems, it, you know, releases nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, which is a big carbon pollutant. So Todd, we've been taking all the the air in the room here. And there's obviously another big category that I mentioned earlier that's important, which is, you know, the emissions related to meat and dairy production. And clearly soils are, are a part of that, but there are other pieces, right? So wondering if you could talk about sort of the sources of emissions when we're talking about creating those animal-based proteins and what kind of solutions we have available to us to to address them. Yeah. I want to know why you make me follow Thomas. <laughs> I feel like I'm back I feel like I'm back in school again. Class clown over here screwing around and all of a sudden I gotta follow the smartest guy in the class. <laughs> we, we, you know we can switch me, the stand in a trash can again. I had to do that when I was in second grade. My teacher made me stand in a trash can and like because I was laughing so loud and she made me like just laugh, keep continue laughing as I like stood in a trash can. That was my punishment. Well, don't sell yourself short. I know you can, I know you can speak to this because as folks may not know, you came or grew up in a ranching community. You had some cattle on your property at home. So yeah. I, I trust you. I trust you can speak to this, even if it's hard to follow Mr. Mills. Well, I kind of grew up. Yeah, definitely at a small level, you know, in the in the cattle world, but definitely around that culture, right? In in kind of researching this thing, not to be too dire, but it is, I want to reiterate the fact that obviously the biggest thing any of us could do or anybody out there listening could do is repeat kind of what we had in the first episode. And that's, if you want to do something to reduce your impact, like one of the biggest things you can do is just eat less meat and specifically just eat less beef. If you're a big beef eater and you cut that down, it's like driving an electric car. I mean, it's a huge, huge impact. You know, emissions from livestock account for about 14.5% of total greenhouse gas emissions globally, right? And and two-thirds of that come from cattle. So that's kind of the numbers you're looking at. So when it feels like I pick on beef. I don't mean to, but it's like, it's kind of <laughs> deserving. I like it. It's good. It tastes good, right? Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but it's it, it's a huge impact. It, it's so big that there, there's some research out there that shows that the five largest meat and dairy corporations combined, and that's JBS, Tyson, Cargill, Dairy Farmers of America, and Frontera, are responsible for more annual greenhouse gas emissions than like ExxonMobil by itself, Shell or BP. Um, wow. That's that's significant, right? I mean, it's a significant chunk. But for the solution side, and some of this is really directly related to some of the stuff Thomas was talking about, there's some research that shows you can have like a 46% reduction in net greenhouse gas emissions per unit of beef if you kind of initiated carbon sequestration management strategy on grazed lands. So that's like organic soil amendments, restoring trees, vegetation, kind of just moving away from that kind of scorched earth policy that I think has happened a lot in the past with with the grazing of animals, you know, in, in forest and woodlands, right? Um, riverbanks, you know, 
I remember growing up, riparian zones was a huge thing in the impact. And basically a lot of the land use organizations were basically having ranchers fence off, you know, a lot of those riparian zones. And I'm sure it was a pain in the ass and it's a lot of work, but uh, it has like significant impact. So, so in a way, if people were, you know, kind of visualizing this, instead of kind of that, you know, quintessential um, white fence pasture with just grass, we're looking at something that is, is more natural then. So, you know, achieving these kind of reductions means putting trees back out there, putting natural, you know, other natural vegetation. And, and as you said, sure. you know, making sure that our riverbanks have vegetation on them again, rather than having it just be grass all the way down to the water. Yeah. And I kind of, I've been reading some articles that were maybe a little misleading that were kind of pro beef. Right. And they kind of made it sound like on these grazed lands and some of these pasture lands, right. That the cattle were essential to like maintaining the life of these lands. And I'm kind of thinking like, well, I'm sure you can limit the impact, but I'm guessing those lands probably did pretty well before we ever got here and put cows on them. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, <laughs> it was kind of like that, you know, well, those hills aren't going to graze themselves, you know, <laughs> kind of yeah. mentality, you know, and it's like, that's, I don't know about that. You know, that's, that's a little bit of a stretch, right? And, you know, there's also that argument and it's, there's probably some validity to this, that there's some of these lands that cattle are grazing on that you're not going to put farm ground on anyway. You couldn't do a lot else with it. But I don't know if it's making up for the for the methane, right? You know what I mean? Like, I couldn't tell you that not farming that land wouldn't make up for the net loss of the methane gas that's getting produced. Well, I read in that World Resources Institute article I was mentioning earlier that, you know, the reality is it's not that, you know, there weren't always animals out there, you know, like a cattle equivalent, but there were just so much fewer, right? It The yeah. article talked about, you know, there's 70 billion animals a year that are, you know, quote, harvested for human food. And that's vastly larger than, you know, what would have been in the natural ecosystem. So, sure. you know, it's it's not having a few, you know, elk and deer out there is, is a problem. It's the fact that we just have this, the numbers are so out of balance with what was there, you know, before we came along. And I mean, you already touched on it, Todd. I, I think, you know, it, we have all of these, you know, good and, and getting better every day meat alternatives. And, and it's not to say that you can't have that, you know, that piece of red meat every now and again, but because cattle are so inefficient at converting, you know, that grain into, you know, into meat and they belch all this methane along the way, it becomes extremely carbon intensive. You know, yeah. there's, you know, we've talked about in our other episodes on meat, you're talking, you know, with the methane included on the order of 30 to 50 times the carbon emissions equivalent of, you know, a protein source like a, you know, uh, a black bean. Yeah, one of the other things too uh, that that seemed promising was it's basically they harness the what they call cow poo power, which is is really the in these dairies and they have these catchment ponds for the waste and they take that material and they basically harness it and use it you know burn the gas off of it to generate power. And I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on that process. Yeah. 
Yeah, look, I, I think it's a, a great solution. I mean, we we all know that we've we're going to have to replace uh, you know fossilized natural gas with some other uh, source for those high temperature applications we have in society. Um, so covering these settling ponds, capturing the gas, it's it's a, a two win situation because it's not just that you've been able to do something with it, either generate electricity or use it for making green steel, etc. But you've also saved the methane from being released. And instead, you're combusting it and you're releasing the methane as carbon dioxide and water vapor. So, you know, as we're talking about these these different, you know, solutions that exist to to make our food, you know, more climate friendly, I think we'd be remiss if we talk about something that's not directly associated with food production but has a very big carbon footprint and and that's the waste on the back end. Because the reality is if we waste less food, we don't need to grow as much food and and we have less emissions. And you know, it's estimated that, you know, nearly a third of the food that gets produced never reaches you know, the kitchen table. And in the case of the US, it's it's upwards of, of 40%. And so, you know, when you you look at that in terms of the food that's wasted and then the emissions as that food breaks down, because it too releases methane when it, you know, when it decomposes, you're talking about eight to ten percent of global emissions associated with effectively our food waste. Now, there are huge opportunities to to reduce those numbers and ensure that we're you know we're making use of what we're growing and not only does that enable us to to you know grow less food and create less emissions but it also takes takes some of the pressure off wanting to clear more land for agriculture and reducing some of that deforestation which is ultimately one of the the biggest pieces of the puzzle when it comes to ag emissions it's outrageous to think that we waste that much food I, it really I, is. I, I don't. I don't get it. Well, I mean, honestly, what we really probably need to do, and you're teeing us up for here, Todd, is we need to come back and, and talk about you know food waste, you know, as as a whole episode because I think it really, you know, it, it merits that kind of focus given, um, you know, not only the climate side but the fact that we have people going hungry in the world and yet we're wasting roughly a third of our food. So, yeah, I think definitely opportunity to to dig into it more. Yeah. You know, kind of stepping back, be definitely throwing a lot at you. Um, I think the key messages in my mind are, you know, food is a significant part of our emissions, but that there's big opportunity to be able to reduce those emissions by, you know, removing the fossil fuels that are part of our food system, returning these ecosystems to the extent that we can back to a healthier state, whether it's, you know, trees and shrubs on pasture land or healthier soils and you know and trying to where we can eat lower on the food chain halt deforestation and and avoid waste so you know yes it's a big chunk of emissions but there's you know whether we go with with a carbon price uh or other combinations of of incentives and and penalties there's a big chance for us to you know close the gap that we need to and and hit climate targets by by tackling these these food-based emissions. Any additional thoughts, gentlemen? No, I, I think that sums it up well. I, I mean, I would like to ask for tighter regulations around land clearing, because basically that, you know, the, the more land we clear, the cheaper we make food, 
and the more that allows a population growth, which then puts more pressure on the land. So ultimately, we really need to tighten up the regulations around land clearing and around you know, the, the use of fossil fuels and other things in agriculture in general, because if we don't get, get a grasp on this, we're, we're just driving ourselves off the cliff. <laughs> you know, on that, uh, that optimistic note, uh, Thomas, <laughs> it's like you knew what we had in here for our, our call to action, which, which for today is supporting the Forest Act, which is an act here in, in the, the U.S. Congress that stands for, and you'll love this acronym, Fostering Overseas Rule of Law and Environmentally Sound Trade. <laughs> and, <laughs> but what it does in a much simpler sense is it restricts the products that get produced by clearing land, by clearing forests from entering the U.S. So, you know, these very things you're talking about, Thomas, whether it's, you know, beef in, in Brazil that's being produced because they've cleared Amazon rainforest or, you know, palm oil from, you know, Indonesia by cutting down rainforest there. The intent is to, you know, with this act, prevent those commodities from, from coming into the U.S. Because let's face it, we're, we're the biggest market for this stuff. So, you know, if we mm-hmm. can do a better job of doing our due diligence and buying from, you know, areas that we know are sustainable, it, it's not going to solve the problem, but it definitely goes a long way. So we'll have a link on our website uh, to a petition to, you know, call for the Forest Act to be passed, but uh, encourage folks to check it out because, you know, it does have bipartisan support and who knows, maybe it's one of those, you know, things that we could actually get passed in, in this next Congress. So, so that's a wrap for uh, this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for, uh, for tuning in. Come join us again on December 13th when we'll be releasing our next episode on uh, sustainable building in, in the residential space. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimus.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimus Podcast. <laughs>